welcome to Life Church again. Um, it's good to have you here today. My name is Ryan Coggins. I'm the executive pastor here at Life Church. And Pastor Aaron wanted me to pass on a hearty hello to you today. He's actually in Tanzania, uh, halfway across the world in Africa. Um, and what they're doing, they're, they're seeing that the church is just exploding in growth there. And they actually have way more churches than they do pastors. And so him and a handful of other pastors from around the country are going there to equip and to train and to teach and to kind of help just leadership skills, things like that, how to run a church. I mean, they're literally at the point where people are, um, have been Christ followers for like six weeks and they're being asked to lead churches because they have nobody else to turn to. And so um, it's just amazing things. God is working. And so uh, Pastor Aaron will be back next weekend as we have a, a special Father's Day uh, service for you planned. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're not going to want to miss it. There's a, I think there's an invite card for you on your seats. And so uh, join us with that. But it's my honor and privilege to be able to speak. I count it a huge uh, opportunity, and I don't take it lightly at all, the responsibility of bringing the Word of God and, and discerning it and to teach it today. And so um, thank you for the opportunity. And we are actually uh, concluding a series called Insignificant. And in this series, what we've been doing, and you just saw the little bumper video, but we've been uh, looking at things in Scripture that are seemingly insignificant and how God often uses the seemingly insignificant things of the world to do significant things in his name. And so uh, this weekend is going to be no different than that. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn open to uh, the book of 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm, I'm going to get there in just a minute, but you can prepare yourself and begin turning there now. Um, I got to ask you before we get started here today, how many of you guys are competitive? Would you raise your hand if you are a competitive person. If you're at the West Campus, raise your hand. I can see you. If you're on online campus, wherever you might be, raise your hand. Okay, we got a lot of competitive people here uh, today. And um, I consider myself a competitive person. And if you've ever seen me in action um, when it comes to a competitive situation, I apologize. Um, I, I uh, can be a little bit competitive, um, and by a little bit, I mean a lot, and I can get, uh, it, there's, no, there's no point of doing something if you're going to lose, right? I mean, just, you might as well win, and so it doesn't matter if I'm playing Trivial Pursuit, I will destroy you. I am, I'm going to win. If it doesn't matter if I'm playing a sport, um, I'm gonna, I'll, just, I'll just remove myself from the situation if I feel like I'm going to lose, because I, I want to win, and I'll do everything I can uh, to try to win. It doesn't matter if I'm playing memory with my daughter. Now, some parents have the philosophy that you should just like let your kids win and it builds their self-esteem and blah, blah, blah. No, they, they're going to learn soon enough what failure feels like. And so I might as well just be a, a catalyst to that. But in all honesty, my daughter beats me more times than not, and I'm legitimately trying to win. So um, it kind of backfires on me a little bit. But I like to win. I like, I'm a competitive person by nature. I like to win. Pastor Kevin Miller is talking about this golf outing um, coming up in a couple of weeks. This is the last weekend to sign up. I encourage you, I dare you to sign up because I will own you. And it'll not be a good city. I am going to win that tournament. I'm just going to tell you right now. And I'm being, I'm being a little bit facetious, but not that much. I'm pretty serious at the same time. Um, why do something if you don't plan on being the very best at it? Why do something if you don't plan on winning it? And so um, this past week, I learned a couple of things. Um, my, my daughter, she's almost four years old, and we, she had her first t-ball game. 
That's what they called it. They called it a game. Um, I beg to differ. But they, uh, it was her first t-ball game. And I learned two things. First, I learned that my daughter is not as competitive as I am. And um, she, at least when it comes to that sort of thing, competitive sports, she's kind of, she's, she likes to play and she did a really good job. I was very proud of her. She did better than I thought she was going to do. She had like, you know, the shirt down to her knees and the, she's just, she's little and, uh, but she did a really good job. I was proud, but she doesn't like, she's in the outfield sometimes picking dandelions, you know, that kind of stuff. She's not like totally into the game and I'm trying to psych her up like, all right, come on, we're going to win this thing. And, but I find out another thing. I find out that when they say game, they use that term very loosely. Um, it should have been called a t-ball expose, perhaps, or a t-ball demonstration, something that would more aptly, uh, you know, suit what I actually saw, uh, because in a game, there's a winner and a loser, right? I mean, that's just, the, that's, that's what a game is all about. There's always a winner and a loser. There was no winners. There were no losers. In fact, everybody was kind of just a winner, you know, that, that's kind of how they did it. Everybody got a juice box at the end, you know, everybody got a little pat on the head, you did a good job, everybody got two, everybody went two for two, okay, I don't know how that works, but everybody got a hit, everybody scored twice, and there were times where the ball was like going foul, and they would call it fair, and there were times where the ball, you know, when uh, somebody was actually out, but they called them safe, and I'm just sitting there like, do you guys need an ump? Because I could step in and, and we, I could regulate this thing. And I'm kind of keeping track in my head a little bit. So at the end of the game, I think my daughter's team actually won. And so I let her know that. I'm like, just you know, your coach gave you a juice box and that's all cool and everything. Everybody's a winner, but your team really did win. I just, I just had to point that out for you. I had to let you know I'm proud of you. You did a good job. And, and so that's just how, that's how I am. But there's this one kid in particular on the other team and... Uh, he, I don't know how to put it nice, uh, he was not good at all at t-ball, and he, he was just hacking away at the ball and just missing. I mean, he missed like nine times in a row, and, and it, that's hard to do in t-ball. The, the ball's right there. I'm just like, this poor kid, what, what's going on? I mean, he's literally like going like strongman competition, like a big hatchet or something. Like, I don't know what he's doing. And, um, but you could hear throughout the, the, the crowd, the parents, they start to cheer him on a little bit, okay, because it's just starting to get uh, a little bit embarrassing. So everybody starts to, you know, cheer him on. Come on, Johnny, come on, you can do it. Come on, you can get a hit. And everybody's starting to go, and you kind of hear this rumbling throughout the crowd. And pretty soon, he nails, like, the, the middle of the tee, and the ball kind of trickles in front of home plate. And the parents just start freaking out, go, go, go. And so he, he runs to first base, doesn't exactly know what to do. And, and he gets to first base and everybody's cheering and excited. And, and actually what I found out that day is that the worse you are at t-ball, the more people cheered. It was like the good kids, the kids that are like nailing line drives to the outfield. Nobody's really like, you know, their, their parent is, does a little clap. That's about it. But it's somebody that they kind of feel sorry for or bad for because they're not very good. Those are the kids that got the big cheers. And so um, it, it was kind of a backwards type of thing. But, you know, what I find is that oftentimes in sports and just in life in general, we love to cheer for the underdog. You know, we love to cheer when there's seem, se- seemingly insurmountable you know, odds, insurmountable circumstances. We love when somebody comes out on top. When they, Against all odds, there's no reason that they should come out on top. We love it 
We love that type of a story. When I'm watching sporting events, when I'm watching, you know, I might not even have a team that I'm cheering for necessarily. I don't even really care who wins. I just want whoever's down, whoever's down in the game. I want that team to win because I'm like, I'm always cheering. And then it flip-flops and I'm going back and forth. I just want to see the underdog win. The Olympics are coming up. You're going to see some underdog story that I'm sure of it that they'll t- talk about somebody that against all odds has, is now in the Olympics. And that's how that's, everybody's going to cheer for that person. We love that story. It, you, you look at movies. Almost any movie has an underdog story, a plot line you know, to it. Somewhere in there, you're going to see that type. That's like Disney 101. In order to make a good Disney movie, you've got to have you know, these big odds and these big obstacles and, and to see somebody come victoriously through that. I mean, TV shows... Reality TV, when it comes, you know, American Idol, you see somebody's dreams come true overnight almost. You see somebody that, you know, is just average Joe and then they become this mega superstar overnight or extreme home makeover. I don't even know if that show is still on the air, the move the bus every Sunday night with Ty just yelling it out and we, you know, we put an archery range in your bedroom and it's just this cool thing going on, which is dangerous, but they, they do all these awesome things and they they meet somebody's dream like a dream come true overnight and there's crying involved and everybody gets emotionally into it because we love that story of the underdog and reading through scripture um i believe that god very much is cheering on the underdog i mean you read through any major biblical character abraham moses jacob uh, joshua david uh jesus himself (laughs) They're underdog stories. They're people that are facing incredible odds, and there's no reason that they should come out on top. And yet God intervenes, God provides, God does what only he can do, and you see just an incredible act of God. You see a miracle happen. And it's incredible to read these types of stories, and there's one in particular that we're going to read about today, but I'm glad that we serve a God who is all about the underdog because we often like to project ourselves into those scenarios And there might be people here today that you're facing one of those circumstances, that it seems like there's no way possible that you can get out of this without God intervening. And can I tell you today, we serve a God who would love nothing more than to be the hero, than to come in to provide, to see you, you know, exceed, to see your dreams come true. I believe that we do serve a God uh, who, who makes dreams come true. It's not just extreme home makeover, but sometimes it doesn't happen exactly the way we want it to doesn't happen the way that we think that it should happen. So we're going to read a story out of Scripture and learn a few things from it today. 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is one of my favorite Scriptures in the entire Bible. It says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? She says, your servant has nothing there at all except a little oil. If you're a person that underlines or highlights in your Bible, that's a phrase to underline or highlight because it's the turning point in this story. Except a little oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and kept pouring. When all the jars were full, he said to her son, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. The oil stopped flowing. 
She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. It's a miracle of God, that story. It's, it's, this lady had a little bit of oil, and God completely, just supernaturally intervened and allowed that to not only be enough for her to pay her debts, but also to live on. And I don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse. We're going to talk about that, but it's significant. God is a God of the underdog. This lady was facing insurmountable odds today. And you know, I think it's important to, to realize is that I could have read a lot of different stories out of the Bible to illustrate the exact same point. I could have read about five loaves and two fish. It's almost, it's an almost identical storyline and principles out of it. I could have read about Jesus turning water into wine. I could have talked about a lot of different stories. And I think it's important to understand that because anytime you see a pattern in scripture, it's, it's significant. It's, you better look at it a little bit further because it's not just a descriptive story at that point. If it happens time and time again throughout scripture, uh, like, the, like the principle of sowing and reaping, for instance, you see time and time again throughout scripture. So it's something, this is a principle on which to live our lives by. This exact pattern, and I'm going to spell it out for you today, is, is in Scripture time and time again. So it's one that should jump out and be like, okay, I better pay attention because this is how God works through his people. And we're gonna, there's four things that we see in this passage of Scripture that I believe can change your life, I believe can change your perspective, can change your outlook, can change everything about whatever circumstance you might be facing today. The first thing we see is that there's a problem. I know that sounds real deep, real spiritual, but it's true that there's a problem. There's a significant problem. This lady had a major problem. I mean, she had, uh, not only did her husband just die, uh, but she has no money. Her husband obviously did not have some, you know, life insurance policy, some retirement plan. There was not any cash reserves of any sort and she has nothing, so much so that her husband's creditors are coming to take her two sons and sell them into slavery. She not only just lost her husband, she's about to lose her two sons and never see them again. She has nothing to live on, she, and then that, that's just part of the problem. Then she doesn't even know, how am I even going to survive even after all of this happens to me? I, I got nothing. I mean, she's facing a significant problem. And it, it actually is a little bit encouraging to me to see, okay, my problems aren't quite as bad as what this lady had going on. And if God can answer her prayers, if God can intervene in her situation, I think he can probably handle whatever we might be going through today. And you might be facing a problem, and it's a significant problem. I'm not here to discredit that. Some of you, you might have something going on that it just seems like there's no way out, Ryan, you don't understand. It might be a financial problem. That's something that a lot of people are facing right now, just reality. There's just, it's just a financial problem that I don't know how, how in the world I'm even going to live past the month of June, let alone beyond, you know, like it just, it's, it's bad, Ryan. You might have a, uh, a spiritual problem. Maybe you've just lost spiritual momentum in your life and you just, you just lost something there and there's a, there's a problem, there's a, there's, you know something's going on in your heart. Maybe it's a, a, a relational problem with, fam- with a family member or maybe it's your kids or your marriage or, or just there, there's a problem going on. I bet everybody in this room could think of something right now that you're dealing with. I mean, I, I'd, I'd put money on it. I'm not a gambling guy, but I'm telling you, everybody's dealing with something, something 
that is a problem. That's a significant problem. I'm here to tell you today that we serve a God who not only wants to solve your problems, but he literally wants to take them on as his own problems. I mean, we see that dialogue throughout Scripture time and time again. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, verse 7 says it like this, uh, to cast all your anxieties, to cast all of your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. We serve a God who wants to take on our problems as his own. When I read that scripture, it doesn't just say, you know, pray to God if you got something bad going on and, you know, just just give a little shout out to him, but then go and try to fix it and solve it by yourself. It doesn't say that. It literally says, cast your cares and your anxieties upon him. We serve a God who not only wants to solve your problems, he wants to take them on as his own. And I don't know about you, but it's encouraging to know that that's the God that we serve And this lady, what does she do? She goes directly to God. Now, you might read it and say, well, she went to Elisha. But in those days, Elisha represented God. He he was a prophet of God. So going to Elisha, that that, that was like you were going to God with your problem. She turns directly to God and goes to him with her problem. She doesn't try to fix it on her own. She doesn't try to work a a few little things here and there, if I could just do this or this. Uh, she, She goes directly to God. She goes directly to her source and says, God, I... I need a miracle here. I don't know what I'm going to do. If you find yourself here today and you find yourself facing a problem, a circumstance that seems like you're never going to make it out, can I tell you that you're in a great position to see God do something miraculous in your life? You're in a position to see God's hand of provision show up in your life. So the first thing we see here is that there's a problem. The second thing, it's similar to it but different, is that there's a lack. There is a lack We see it in verse 2. It says, Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing here at all, she said, except a little oil. She's almost like, well, I got nothing. and Well, I guess I don't have nothing, unless you count that little bit of oil that I have. Um, But certainly, God, you can't do anything with that. That's That's just insignificant. There's always going to be a lack. Anytime God um, does anything, any great act of provision, any great miracle in all of Scripture, there's always not only a problem, but there's a lack. There's, there's no supply. And this lady, for her, it was a little bit of an issue of perspective because she thought she had nothing. It's kind of like I've learned that if a woman says, um, I have nothing to wear, I've learned a couple of things about that. Number one, it's not necessarily supposed to be taken literal, okay, that there probably is something to wear, but, you know, it might just not be the right thing. And secondly, I've learned to stay out of it. Guys, just, 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 just go with it. It's okay. Um, just look past the hundreds of outfits in the closet. It's, it's going to be all right. This event means it's special or whatever it might be. Um, but, I've, uh, you know, sometimes it can be an issue of perspective for us. We think we have nothing. And if we zoomed out globally every once in a while and realized how many billions of people would trade places with us in a second, uh, I'm not here to make, make you feel guilty or beat you up for what you have because God's not asking us to trade places with anybody, but he is asking us to take a step back and realize we are a blessed people. We do have a lot. And for this lady, she needed to realize, okay, I got a major problem. I have a lack. 
but it's not as bad as maybe I think it is in, a, in my head. It's kind of like momentum. When you have it, you appear greater than what you are. When you don't have it, you appear worse than what you are. This lady does not have momentum, and she appears worse than what she really is. God's greatest provision oftentimes comes in our lack, in our deficiency, in, 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 in what we don't have. And we can get so focused on what we don't have that we forget that we have a Heavenly Father and I don't want to get ahead of myself again because we're going to talk about it in just a second, but it's exciting to know we have a Heavenly Father who has everything, that He is loaded, that He has everything we could ever want or imagine. And if we can get past our lack and understand that we serve the God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills, that it's going to be okay. You know, some of the greatest acts of provision have very small beginnings. I remember when I was called into ministry, this is... Uh, one of the few times in my life where I feel like it was a thus saith the Lord moment. But I remember my, uh, having my first ministry opportunity uh, was to lead a youth ministry. I was a volunteer. I was 19 years old. Didn't really know what I was doing. I had a, another job and was taking 18 credits a semester. And I had a, just a lot on my plate. But I was like, okay, God, if I'm going to be a pastor, a youth pastor, whatever, if I'm going to work at a church, I better just get involved now. And so I, uh, I asked, you know, could I, could I help with this youth ministry? They said, absolutely. And I've learned if, if, um, if they're overly enthusiastic to, to maybe just ask a couple more questions. But I show up, and my first Wednesday night, um, we're in a room at the, in the far corner of the basement of the church, and there's 15 folding chairs set out in a circle, and there's eight kids and myself. And I remember just you know, praying to God and just saying, okay, God, here it goes. Because there was literally a kid that was older than me in the youth group, which was, I don't know where he went wrong, failing or something, something happened there. But he was older than me, senior in high school. And, and so it was a little intimidating, to be honest with you. I didn't have a budget. I didn't have a paycheck coming in at all. I, you know, I didn't have uh, equipment. I didn't have any resources. The only thing I had was I was told by the pastor to make sure that I didn't have any parent complaints. You know, that was like the one stipulation um, in ministry. So I was like, okay, I think I, think I can do that. But it was a small beginning, it was a small beginning. And, and right now you might just be, find yourself in a position where you just are lacking resources, you're lacking encouragement, you're lacking maybe spiritual maturity. I, I don't know what it is, but there's a lack there. There's not just a problem, but there's also... A lack. Every great act of God also has a lack. Number three, the, the, the third thing that we see, and this is when we start getting into the exciting and the fun stuff here today. Number three, there's a provision. There's always a provision. Verses three through five, it says this, Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She, kept, she left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and they kept on pouring. And it's an absolute miracle of God that the, the, there was just more and more oil. And um, what we see here though is that there's two sides of, of a provision, of a miracle. There's two sides of it. Uh, there's God's side and there's our side. And we like to think, when we read through Scripture, we like to think that God just showed up and just did something miraculous. But that's the exception way more than it is the rule. In fact, I could only find two places in Scripture 
where God created something out of nothing, where God just, just did something without anybody else being involved at all. Uh, first, the creation of the world, he spoke, and there it was. Okay, that was like the, he, he created something out of nothing. And then secondly, you see uh, the Israelites when they're in the, in, in the wilderness, that manna is dropped from heaven. That's the only other example I could find in Scripture of God creating something out of nothing. Every other miracle has God doing his part, but also us doing our part. In some instances, it's us just simply lending our faith, or whoever it is in Scripture, it's them lending their faith to see somebody healed miraculously. In this Scripture in particular, there's two sides of the equation. The, 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 the widow first has to take her little bit of oil, gather a bunch of empty jars before God ever did anything. And can I tell you today, we often like to wait for the miracle. We like to just, okay, I'm just going to pray, God, just do something. <laughs> that manna in the sky thing you did one time, that was cool. Could you do that with $100 bills and, you know, just on my yard? Or, you know, could you do something? Because I like that manna falling from the sky thing. But God's saying, no, no, I'm waiting for you to take your faith. I'm waiting for you to do what only you can do. And then, and only then, will I show up and do what only I can do. See, God will do his part, but we have to do ours first. Everybody, would you, would you just humor me for a second? You guys are looking a little sleepy, so I gotta wake you up a little bit. Could you repeat this phrase after me? I think this, this, this phrase is key. God works when we work what we've got. You guys sound so excited today. It's just, God works when we work what we've got. God works when we work what we've got. Oftentimes, God is not going to show up until we take the first step and say, I'm, you got to do your part. You're looking for a job? Don't just sit on, uh, you know, at home and pray for it. Get your resume out there. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, you got to work what you've got. God, I, I hear single guys talk about, I'm just waiting to, to meet the right girl. And I just haven't found Miss Perfect yet. And I'm, I, I would challenge you, have you, are you working what you got? Are you brushing your teeth? Are you putting a little product in your hair? Are you, are you dressing? You know, are you, I would tell you too, um, at Life Church, we have a ministry called the Greeter Ministry. Join it. Because you can say things like, welcome to Life Church, honey, baby, whatever. I'm just kidding. Don't, 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 don't really say that. We're going to have an influx of guys signing up from the Greeter team. But put yourself in a position. I mean, work what you got. Some of you want a new car. I would challenge you. How do you treat the one that you have right now? I, I've been there, man. I, I had, I've had a lot of just fantastic vehicles. I had one that was affectionately nicknamed Chip, um, and it wasn't just a cute name. I mean, it had paint chips going on everywhere, hail damage. I mean, that thing had 267,000 miles on it, 1996 Chevy Corsica. It was just terrible. But I remember taking that thing out on a Friday afternoon, washing it, waxing it, detailing it, going in, vacuuming it out, getting it all nice because that's what I was driving my family in. So I'm going to work what I got. I'm going to take what I do have, take what I do have in my hand, and I'm going I'm to treat it like it's the very best thing I possibly have because God's not going to show up and just give you the desires of your heart until you start stewarding what he's already given you. What do you have in your hand? That's what this lady has asked. What do you have in your house? Well, I guess I have a little bit of oil. Then take that oil and work it. Take that oil and have faith. 
you know, take that, I remember in that, that youth group that I, that I was a part of, I remember taking that, that, that youth group with eight kids and just saying day in and day out, I'm going to pray for these kids. I'm going to, to do everything in my power. I'm going to, I'm just going to do whatever it takes. I don't even know what it looks like to be a youth pastor, but I'm going to do whatever I've got to do. And over four and a half years, I saw that youth group go from eight to 15 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50. I remember nights where we had a 70, 80 kids. And I remember looking back and saying, thank God that I didn't just say, oh, that's just too small. I just can't do anything with that. Work what you've got. And I'm telling you, I would not be standing here today if I did not walk into that youth group of eight kids with 15 folding chairs. I'm just telling you, work what you've got. What do you have? I hear people uh, will come up to me sometimes and say, well, I'm called into full-time ministry. And I say, okay, well, where are you volunteering right now? You, you attend Life Church, right? Well, yeah, but well, where are you volunteering? Well, you know, it's, I'm just kind of waiting for the right opportunity. And oh, I want to be a youth pastor, but I'm, well, are you involved in student life? Well, no, but, you know, I got away from my, my um, work schedule to, well, there's an opportunity right in front of you. Work what you've got. We're waiting for God to open up the, the miraculous door for something to happen. And he's simply saying, would you just step through the one that I've already opened for you? You know, sometimes we look for God to do something uh, mysterious almost when God has called us to do something so clear. He's called us to love him. He's called us to love others. He's called us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. It's not a complicated thing and yet we just want to wait for that miracle. Well, you know, I'm just going to wait for God to j- drop that Cadillac Escalade in my driveway and it's all going to be good and that's what... And God's saying, what do you have? What do you have in your house? Work what you've got. Stop praying for your neighbors to, to, to come to faith in Christ and go over and give them an apple pie and show them the love of Christ. I'm not saying stop praying for them. I'm saying, you know, don't just, just sit on your hands and just wait for, for somebody to come to faith in Christ. Go up to them and share the love of Christ with them. Work what you've got. Allow God to allow that, that seed to be planted in their life and allow God to do what only he can do. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads people to repentance, not anything that you can do. But I'm telling you, work what you've got. I found that most people don't need a miraculous provision of God most of the time. Uh, they don't need God to drop manna from the sky. They simply need to work what they've got. They simply need to take what they do have and put it into practice. And I'm, I'm preaching way too long today, so we're going to land the plane. But it's, it's exciting to know that we serve a God who wants to partner with us. Pastor Aaron talked about that last weekend. We serve a God who doesn't just sit around and just kind of just watch us from up above. He wants to get involved in our lives. He wants to partner with us. He wants to let every miracle not only be his, his doing, but partner with us and, and to allow that to happen together so that our faith can be increased. There's, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on, but there, there's a problem. The, third, the fourth thing and the last thing is this. There's a surplus. There's a surplus. This is significant, and I don't want you to overlook this part of the scripture. Verses 6 and 7 says, When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But, she, but he replied, There's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. God could have just met her need. Her need was that she had these creditors coming that were going to take her sons away. And God could have just given her exactly enough for her to, to pay her debts. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just pay her debts. 
He gives her enough that she can live on it the rest of her life. And sometimes I think we get weird about this because we think that we serve a God who just meets our needs. And yes, he does, but God does not get excited about just meeting our needs. God wants to meet the desires of our heart, uh, it's, which it's a big difference. And, you know, I, I liken it to being a father myself and having two kids. I don't pat myself on the back when we, when we have dinner together because, oh, look, we, we help provide. This, and again, I know that God is my source, but just as an example, um, I help provide this, this food for you today. And you see this roof? May and Ben, you see this, this, this roof over your house? Yeah, I did that. I'm awesome. That's, that's, that's what I do. I, I, I provided your needs. You know that, uh, you know, this, 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 no, somebody pays this, this um, electric bill, you know, and I, I did that. I don't get excited. I mean, as a father, that's just what you do. You know, that's, I don't get excited about meeting my kids' needs. That's not, you know, God meeting my kids' needs through me. That's not, that's not exciting for me. But what is exciting is Christmas time. You know, what is exciting is their birthday when I do something above and beyond what they even are expecting in their mind. What is exciting is, is when I've been gone for a few days or, you know, come home from a trip and I come home with a bag of souvenirs. I mean, it's just like little stuff, like those $8 lollipops that you can, you know, just like it's the size of their face. And they don't need that. They don't need a sucker. In fact, I could probably argue that they really do not need that sucker. And it's going to not necessarily be the best thing for them. Um, but man, their face lights up when they get it. You know, or when I come home and say, hey, guys, we're all going off for ice cream tonight. They just get excited about that because it's not about meeting their needs it's about exceeding their expectations and I believe that we serve a God who not just wants to meet our needs he wants to exceed our expectations if we will simply partner with him if we will simply take what we have in our hand and allow God to put his super on our natural allow God to take what we have and stretch it out and make it work and do a miraculous provision in our lives. I believe that we serve a God who is the God of leftovers. <laughs> I don't like leftovers, just to be honest with you, but we're not talking about those kinds of leftovers. We're not talking about expired milk here or anything like that. That gets a little bit weird. Uh, we're talking about God wants to give you so much more than even, than even you have in your head right now. You know, your problem, your lack that maybe you thought about earlier, God doesn't, he, he can take care of that. That's, that's easy. But I really believe that we serve a God, and you see the, the heart and the character of God clearly in this passage of Scripture because he wants to exceed your expectations. You need a job? Well, God just doesn't want to give you a job that helps pay the bills. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. And, and, and the, the problem that we run into sometimes is that we want that to happen overnight. <laughs> we want that extreme home makeover thing to happen in like a month, you know, and it's just... That's not always how God works. We, dreams come true, but not in, in, in our timing. They happen in God's timing. We've got to work what we've got, but allow God to do what only he can do. You know, as, as we wrap up today, uh, some of you, you have a problem. You have a lack. You have something in your life that you would say, Ryan, that's just me right now. I just have that, uh, the circumstance in my life. We serve a God who deeply cares about that problem that you're thinking of right now who deeply cares about every need, and not only every need, but every want. I believe that God takes seriously the, de the desires of our heart. 
Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to solve it. Stop trying to justify it. Stop trying to do it on your own and allow God to simply take it. To do what only you could do. I'm not negating obligation on our part or inactivity on our part. I'm not saying that that's what we do. But to allow God to do what only he can do. The, the book of Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11 says, You parents, if, you, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That's the God that we serve. Let him be your provider. Let him bless you today beyond even what your, your own need is today. Let him bless you beyond that. Give it to God. Work what you've got. Do what you can do, but allow God to be your provider. Allow him to be Jehovah Jireh. Allow him to do what only he can do. Let's pray together today. Father, we thank you for your provision. I'm just going to ask right now, right where you are today, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but right where you are, if you'd say, Ryan, I have one of those problems that you talked about, and I need God to show up. I have a lack. I have a problem. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? I just want to pray for you today. Yes, just hands all over the place. Thank you. God, I pray for those hands that you just saw. Lord, you know intimately the details of their situation, and you care deeply about each and every person here, and you care deeply about our needs and our wants. And I pray today that we would have faith to give it to you, first of all. And then, Lord, that we would have the obedience to do what only we can do. That you would tell us, Lord, what is the next step? What is it that you're asking us to do? What kind of faith are you requiring from us so that we can be obedient to you and allow you to do what only you can do? I pray that we would just submit to that partnership today. I pray that we wouldn't just sit on our hands and wait for manna from heaven. We wouldn't wait for you to create something out of nothing. But Lord, we know that you're a God of process. And most of the time in scripture, Lord, you want to work through partnership. You want to work through us. And I pray today, Lord, that we would be completely, 100% submitted to you today. We give you our problems. We give you our lack we give you everything, Lord God. We give you our faith today. And I pray, Lord God, that we would glorify you and believe that you are going to do what only you can do. Lord, we pray that we, it would happen in your perfect timing, your perfect will. Lord, you have a perspective that we do not have. And we honor that. And we thank you for your provision. In your name we pray today. Amen.